So I'm one of those few people uh, that was working on local before it was cool and, uh, and have actually spent 20 years looking at local food markets in some form or fashion. So I hope tonight I'm able to give you an idea of what uh, the current climate is related to market demand for local food and how that might affect your uh, decisions in, in, in community planning and in urban planning. So again, I'm going to talk a bit about why local food matters. Views from the national landscape. First, I'm going to talk about what do we mean by local food. I'm going to talk about the relationship of local food to the U.S. food system. What does the future of local food look like? And how do I, our programs at the Agricultural Marketing Service facilitate market access for local food? So starting with what is local. Very, very basically, we say a food product that is raised, produced, aggregated, stored, processed, and distributed in the locality or region in which the final product is marketed. As many of you in this audience know, there is no real official designation for local. And frankly, it's not such a secret. I hope there never is because I think that communities and regions need to define that for themselves because it's so much based on terrain and geography and access. We have a very broad definition we use the department as kind of a maximal definition of local, which is less than 400 miles from the origin of the product or within the state. <clears throat> we also consider local food to be both sales that are direct-to-consumer, like your farmer's market, or intermediated sales by aggregators, brokers, distributors, such as a food hub or a restaurant distributor. As long as the identity of the product is conveyed along the supply chain. I thought it might be helpful to jumpstart this presentation to talk a bit about how consumer perspectives are changing. So this is from uh, 2013. Phil Lambert's a pretty well-known uh, supermarket consultant. And he said, people are choosing foods more holistically these days based on multiple food factors, taste, ingredients, source, nutritional composition. They're asking who are making the foods and understanding their impact on environment and animal welfare. And what I would encourage you to look at is you look at all of these and you say, how many of these correspond to local food? How much can local food help serve and satisfy today's consumer preference? OK, consumers leaning towards different store formats. Um, you'll notice here, so this is uh, from Jones Lang LaSalle, this is a, uh, cons another consulting firm that came out with a report in 2014. <coughs> they did a projection of 2018 and gave us an estimate of the 2013 market share for different store formats. This is just for perishables and consumables, by the way. Um, you'll see traditional supermarket 2013, 40% market share, expected to decline slightly to 37% by 2018, but here's the really important point. In 1994, 
Anyone care to guess what the average supermarket share, traditional supermarket share of groceries were or consumables and perishables in this country? 75? That's really good. It was 80% or 81%. By 2004, it had declined to just over half. So what we're talking about is a very, very dramatic change. And some of it's been picked up by the big box retailers, by the super centers. But when it comes to perishables, especially high-quality perishables, high-value perishables, we're also starting to see a pickup at the other end of the scale, this fresh-format limited assortment store. Right now, they have the strongest rate of growth among store formats in the grocery store category. They emphasize perishables and center store assortments that differ from traditional retailers, especially in the areas of natural foods, organic foods, and ethnic foods, and, you know, whole foods and fresh market are examples of the kind of chains that are seeing this kind of popularity. As I just mentioned, I think you can see that there's tremendous convergence between these changing consumer preferences and local food. There we go. And I'll just point out the, where I have the, the, the bolded font in the first paragraph. There's a demand for freshness. There's a demand for transparency, trust, knowing where your food comes from, knowing what's in your food, and a demand for product integrity. And I want you to keep those ideas in mind as you listen to the rest of this presentation, because I think you'll hear echoes of that throughout. What's driving demand? A.T. Kearney, 2013, they said, they polled grocery shoppers, primary grocery shoppers, and they said they're embracing the increase in local food options because, well, two-thirds said it helps local economies. 60% says delivers a broader and better assortment of products. 45% provides healthier alternatives. In my head, I kind of put a little bit of a line, like a dotted line, underneath healthy alternatives until we get to the next two. Some sm much smaller uh, group talks about improving the carbon footprint, increasing natural organic production. Now, if you were to have asked consumers 20 years ago, those last two, the environmental issues, would have been far more important. But as local food has moved beyond the core consumer to more the mainstream, what we're seeing, again, is an interest in personal health, an interest in community development, small business development, an interest in quality, taste, flavor. Those are some of the major drivers. And that's being carried through, certainly, uh, into the food service industry. In 2014, Approximately 70% of restaurant operators said their patrons were more interested in locally sourced items than two years earlier, and that number was 90% for fine dining restaurants. <coughs> um, Dr. Vasi, Ayon Vasi from the University of Iowa, uh, presented this paper this summer um, at the American Sociological Association, and he said the local food market 
is what sociologists call a moralized market, where people combine economic activities with their social values. And when you think about the rise of social entrepreneurship in so many different aspects of our lives these days, the food market is no exception. In some ways, it may actually be a leader. Fassi says, it's not just about the economical exchange, it's a relational an ideological exchange as well. It's about valuing the relationship with the farmers and the people who produce your food and believing that how they produce the food aligns with your personal set of values. I think there's an abundant growing body of evidence to suggest that this is very true. And for this particular audience, I really wanted to highlight the first paragraph up here. It says, University of Iowa researchers discovered local food markets were more likely to develop in areas where residents had a strong commitment to civic participation, health, and the environment. So as we're looking at holistic approaches to community planning, keep in mind that local food may be one of those components and one of those anchors. Top 10 menu trends for 2015. <clears throat> this is from the National Restaurant Association's What's Hot Chef Survey. Uh, I highlighted, if, of 10, I highlighted, let's see, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, that were obviously related to local food. I think one can argue that number 9, food waste reduction management, might also be included in some respects. Uh, you'll see here meats and seafood that are locally sourced, taking first place next uh, uh, from produce, uh, which suggests that you know local produce has been known about and for a while, but meats and seafood are kind of the next rung. Excuse me. And of course, what chefs showcase their menus then becomes later what we tend to see in our grocery stores and what becomes the routine shopping habits of the public. Um, <clears throat> availability of locally grown food in stores has become a major influence on where people go shopping for groceries. 87% said in the National Grocery Association consumer panel taken last year that it's either very or somewhat important to their choice of a primary food store. Here's really the important, here's a really interesting twist. Who is within that very important component? Number one, Hispanics. I bet that wasn't your first choice. But this points to interest, well, one, depending on whether you're talking about people that are, whether immigrants or first generation, both accustomed to a lot of scratch cooking, accustomed to shopping for food in, 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 in markets, and having a very, very uh, strong sense of, um, uh, of quality and freshness and, and really wanting certain characteristics in their produce. Um, I think that's part of the explanation behind that. Single-person households and adults between the ages of 50 and 64 that, you know, that's me, that's my group. We're looking for health. We're looking for health promotion. 
we're maybe eating less, but we have more discretionary income often, and we want higher quality. All things to consider. Shoppers will switch stores for local food selection. Almost 30% of grocery shoppers say they will consider purchasing food elsewhere if their preferred store does not carry local foods. Respondents say that their main source for local food still remains the local farmer's market or farm stores. Only 5% say that they shop for local foods at big box retailers and 15% at national supermarkets. <coughs> this is a slightly older study. This was 2006, taken by, done by Colorado State. I, I point this out here because I want to show the distinction between where it's something can be a primary place to shop for groceries versus a primary place to obtain highly perishable produce. Case of supermarkets, primary food source for those surveyed, 76% as a primary source of fresh produce, only 56%, and this was a national panel. Farmers markets, primary food source across the board, 1%, primary source of fresh produce, 25%. Let's not underestimate the importance. And this is taken nearly 10 years ago. So... There's something going on here. Let's get back to trust. This is, this is a real shocker. Online big box and national chains rank lowest in fruit trustworthiness. Who knew? What's top? Finding out it's 1 to 10 scale. 8.2% farmer's market. Shoppers across all segments all income segments, willing to pay more for local. Now, we haven't tested this. This is not empirical. It doesn't surprise me that 95% of single urban households would say, yes, I'm willing to pay more for local food, but 57% of low-income families? This is not a niche. This is not about the elite. This is about the mainstream. This is about trust. This is about transparency. This is about people's disengagement from our current food system. Local food's contribution to the national food system, well, if you look at what are available statistics, which are pretty scanty, and um, the only major statistic that we've had in the national sense, the census of agriculture, only covers a very, very small proportion of local food. It is literally, the, the, it is direct-to-consumer food sales for human consumption. Um, that's only three-tenths of a percent of total demand, according to the last census. But if we look across the board at where food is marketed, and if we take into account food that goes through an intermediary, to a local market, we find that nearly 8% of U.S. farms participated in local food marketing channels, according to our latest numbers. <coughs> uh, my sister agency, the Economic Research Service of USDA, estimated that uh, in 2012, local food sales exceeded $6 billion. I know there have been some consulting firm reports out there talking about current f- food sales as much as $12 billion, but we really don't know. Um, this, we feel it's pretty solid based on very good census data. 
Um, there are a lot more farms that sell direct than go through intermediaries, mostly to wholesale markets, but uh, or ch- wholesale channels, wholesale buyers. But wholesale sales of local food, you know, generates far more income per farm. If you look at those that use exclusively intermediated wholesale marketing channels, they averaged almost 150000 per farm from their local food sales compared to just over 10000 per farm uh, for those that exclusively use direct channels. Um, no surprise why this should be happening. Uh, you know, you labor-intensive direct-to-consumer marketing generates pretty low revenues uh, and you know producers have uh, gained a lot of advantage from being able to trade in commercial size volumes uh, and often the, the rise that we've seen in aggregation services which we'll talk about in a bit as well as uh, the introduction of season extension technology has really enabled uh, a wholesale sales of local food to take a major leap forward. <coughs> However, it's not always so easy for local farmers individually to access these larger volume marketing channels. By themselves, they often lack the capacity to meet buyer requirements when it comes to volume or quality or consistency or extended availability. Um, and they often are challenged by the absence of infrastructure that would give them wider market access. And this is an area that I and my supervisor, Ken, and our division are working on very much. We'll talk about in a second. So in the same time, commercial buyers are asking for more and more requirements. They're looking for record-keeping and product monitoring systems so that they can assure this transparency to their buyers in the chain. Uh, They're looking for third-party certifications of good agricultural practices and good handling practices and uh, soon we'll be looking at the consequences of the Food Safety Modernization Act. So uh, it's becoming harder and harder to penetrate those wholesale markets, the retail markets, the institutional markets. Um, So where do we come in? So we have been working a lot on what we call regional food hubs. We believe that these intermediary entities can have been playing, will continue to play an important role in supporting the survivability of small and mid-sized farmers by allowing them to enter into uh, co-sell volume transactions. Um, What are these? Um, Let me ask, how many people in the room have heard of food hubs before tonight? Oh, yay. This is exciting. All right. Um, I'm very proud that our group was really the, the group at USDA that has been the kind of the leader and champion of Food Hub, so it really pleases me to see that there is uh, uh, such widespread knowledge of, uh, of it. Um, so, as many of you already know, they carry out or coordinate the aggregation, distribution, and marketing of primarily locally and regionally produced foods. Some of them have some seasonal variability. They move product from multiple producers to multiple markets. Uh, they're structured in such a way uh, through joint planning and uh, decision making that producers are typically considered valued business partners instead of interchangeable suppliers and they tend to have and we'll show you a couple examples in a bit more room to negotiate a better price for themselves uh, they tend to be committed to buying from the small to mid-sized producers who are focusing on servicing a local market 
And they use product differentiation to ensure that producers can maximize the returns from their sales through identity preservation and group branding and just a lot of information about the origin products and the ways that the products were grown or animals were raised. So, as you see, there's been a dramatic increase in the number of regional food hubs right now, hovering just above 300. Uh, We expect to see this shake out a bit. There have been some businesses that are acquiring others, you know, as you would expect from a very rapidly um, growing and uh, very um, just emerging business sector. We will see some continued consolidation, but clearly there is demand for this type of service. Um, so USDA, uh, USDA's Economic Research Service does an annual review of the marketing bill and looks at the farm share, the farmer, the, what the farmer uh, makes, or the farm, the farm gate price uh, compared to the final uh, retail price in a, in a consumer market outlet. And uh, overall, in 2012, the farm share was only. 17.4 cents on each of each consumer food dollar spent. Well, in local food systems and with short supply chains, we've been able to help producers. You know, well, one, they don't have some of the other expenses. They don't have some of the transportation, some of the fuel costs, some of the advertising, some of the packaging. We've been able to help them make a little more money. Uh, an ERS report from a few years ago said that local producers in several case studies received up to seven times the share of the retail price that they did in mainstream chains. And we know that food hubs on their kind of fee-for-service formula often return between 75 to 85% of their wholesale sales revenues to the producers. A couple examples for you. This is Intervale Food Hub in Burlington, Vermont. Anybody familiar with Intervale? Okay, so Allison, one thing about Intervale, you know, so Intervale is in the city, but it is on public land. But there's all these individual businesses, right? So I think that's also, this is a good example for this crowd, and maybe when we have our Q&A, we can talk about examples like this later. Um, They estimate most of their business is supporting uh, community-supported agriculture, uh, but to workplaces. So they deliver, you know, hundreds of baskets or thousands of baskets to insurance companies and banking firms and things like that to employees that take them home. <clears throat> they believe that the producers net about 60 to 70 percent of the retail revenue from those CSA sales, the workplace CSAs, and 85 percent of revenue obtained through uh, distribution to wholesale customers. Red tomato. Anyone here shop at Trader Joe's? Okay, you've probably seen Red Tomatoes apples. You may have even purchased some. I did last week. Um, They distribute also to Stop and Shop in the Northeast and a few other places. Um, They employ a number of product differentiating strategies, regional branding, source identification, verified use of sustainable production practices like integrated pest management. Uh, this in November 2009, this case study appeared in the Harvard Business Review. They were able to negotiate a much higher price, base price, uh, 
for their tomatoes because of the unique attributes of the product combined with, you know, shared logistics and this higher wholesale price. The producers received three times higher returns than they did for the comparable item in other mainstream marketing channels. So this stuff can work. I'm actually going to pass on this um, to move on. But just to say, <clears throat> we don't have a whole lot of information yet on this. But I just saw this citation, and I thought I'd share it. This is from Bill Justin, and he's a supermarket consultant in Atlanta. He says, there are demonstrated sales gains that come from locally grown food programs in grocery stores. He has seen examples of such programs increasing sales by as much as 15 to 20 percent in the produce department. And there's also a lot of interest here now in how do we supply ourselves and keep ourselves self-sufficient in the wake of California's drought. I think it's a real turning point for the sector. All right, just want to go through before I head over and talk about some of our programs a bit. I'm going to just go over a few demand drivers here. For me. <coughs> These are a couple of background uh, contributors, I think, to what's uh, lifting demand for local. Uh, one is the fact that now your SNAP recipient can use his or her benefits at the majority of farmers' markets um, because of, uh, through uh, programs and grants between my agency originally and now USDA's Food Nutrition Service, they now, most markets have or can get access to the electronic benefits transfer equipment that allows for the redemption of card-based SNAP benefits. As a result, the acceptance of SNAP benefits at farmers' markets grew from about 900 sites in 2009 to more than 6,400 in 2014, and the value of redemptions grew from 4 million to nearly 19 million. And that doesn't even count things like the rise of mobile farmers' markets that we've seen the last few years in urban areas. Schools. We have a brand new census just came out on farm-to-school program. Uh, there are farm-to-school programs now in more than 42,000 schools. Farm-to-school meaning schools that are procuring local food for use in uh, school meals. Schools spent more than $600 million on local food uh, in 2013-14, up more than 50% from the previous year. Uh, we're also seeing greater interest in hospitals um, and military bases just today. We just published a new document on farmers' markets and military bases. And if anyone's interested, I'm happy to tell you more about it later. OK. Now, getting to where we are. OK. Why are we involved? Why is USD involved? Why is AMS involved? Well, you know, I, I like to shock people by letting them know that we've actually been mandated to do this kind of work since 1946. Pretty cool. 1946 Agricultural Marketing Act, we are mandated to reduce the distribution cost and the price spread between producers and consumers. We are directed to market the full production of American farmers, regardless of scale, 
in a useful, economical, profitable, and orderly manner, an improvement of overall dietary and nutritional standards is a primary policy goal. And this was followed in 1976 by the passage of the Farmer to Consumer Direct Marketing Act, another part of our authorizing legislation, which directly encouraged the promotion of direct farm marketing activities for the mutual benefit of farmers and consumers. So, again, we support the development and creation of shorter food supply chains. We work to ensure that food producers receive a greater share of the final retail price. We support profitable marketing of American farmers at all levels of scale. And we promote direct marketing and local food marketing these days where it provides mutual benefit to farmers and consumers. Okay, let me quickly run down a number of the things you might be interested in. Uh, I don't know if anyone you, any of you in the room are familiar with our National Farmers Market Directory. Yes, no, maybe so. Okay, I got one nod too. Excellent. Okay, we launched three others last year. Um, if you go to that site, and our hand, this is all in the handout, um, you can take a look at our national uh, directories for uh, farmers markets, CSAs, food hubs on farm markets. If you know managers of any of these entities that would like to be included aren't there yet, please let me know. We'll make sure to send them a form and get them included. <coughs> we have an API, um, and we were the first one built by the federal government uh, by popular demand. Um, we also administer farmers market manager surveys that are voluntary. They're opt-in surveys, but their own be approved that are connected to our directories. Um, I've talked a lot about our food hub work. Um, I'll show you in a second some of our products. We also have, and this will be of interest to you guys, a staff architect. We do facility design work. We have actually done some brochures that show how we have uh, supported uh, site assessment and layout analysis for uh, permanent food market facilities, farmers markets, and food hubs. Uh, we also have one uh, that traced the development and building out of infrastructure of the Tuscarora organic growers in Pennsylvania uh, and how they were able to do it in this very prudent way so as not to incur debt. Okay, as I said, here are some of the things we have on the shelf. Happy to make any of these available to any of you. Coming up, <coughs> evolving CSA business model. Did this with the University of Kentucky. We expect it to be out in December. Results of a national survey and focus group interviews in six states. Um, potential demand for local pro uh, agricultural products by mobile markets. That'll also be coming at the end of the year and. Uh, for this audience, probably the most of, most of interest, the Local Food Economic Assessment Toolkit, which is a... Uh, a guide to creating your own community assessment using secondary and primary data and implant. Uh, this was put together by a team of about 10 mostly land-grant academicians with... Uh, very uh, specific experience in this area of doing economic impact analysis and a couple of consultants and let's talk a little bit about it. Why do we do the toolkit? Well, folks like you came to us and said, gee, can you tell us 
something about what's the economic impact of all this local food demand. And we're like, hmm, we're not quite sure. Let's see if we can figure it out. So we turned to our uh, colleagues in, in the academy and had them help us create a roadmap for measuring and evaluating overall impact using accepted methodologies. So <clears throat> I want to give you, I had neglected to put the, the, the link here, but let me, let me give it to you. If you go to www.localfoodeconomics, localfoodeconomics, one word, .com, you will see the results, presentations from some of our early training. Okay. Is that five? Okay. I'm good. All right. Um, uh, that, will, that will allow you to take a look at some of the things that are up and coming. Sorry about this, guys. Me and my technical difficulties here. Okay. Um, oops, I'm going backwards. Okay. Okay. <clears throat> Just wanted to give you a sense of what this is going to contain the toolkit. These are the topics covered at seven chapters, going from probably least complex to most complex. Framing research approaches, collecting primary data, compiling data from secondary sources best list of secondary source material I've ever seen in this area. Developing a solid graphs of economic multipliers and their limitations as measurement tools. Making effective use of, of implant and customizing it as needed to better reflect conditions on the ground. More to come. Okay. I'm just going to run through these very quickly. We can always follow up with any of you that are interested about some of our grant programs. Farmers Market Promotion Program supports direct-to-consumer marketing this year. Uh, well, we expect to have about $13 million in funding available in this fiscal year. We're likely to see the RFA in March. Local Food Promotion Program. This supports local food sales and development of local food markets that are marketed through intermediaries, not direct. Again, similar funding and similar timelines to the Farmers Market Promotion Program. Specialty Crop Block Grant Program supports fruits, vegetables, tree nuts, dried fruits, horticulture, nursery crops. $63 million in funding was available in 2015. It's done on a prorated basis based on the share of state share of production. State Departments of Agriculture administer their own programs. AMS provides administrative oversight. Did want to point this out. There's a new multi-state specialty crop black program. It is open right now, designed to support food safety research, address plant pest disease, increase marketing opportunities for specialty crops. It was announced in early September, and it closes January 14th. Should that be of interest, I'll let you look at some of the uh, basic issues related to it <coughs> at your leisure. Um, these are some of the priority areas. Then we have <coughs> Lastly, we have our this is our granddaddy of grant programs, Federal State Marketing Improvement Program, matching funds to states for a broad range of 
market research and market service programs and funding is about $1 million per year. And um, <coughs> we are also inheriting my, um, my division responsibility for cost share for organic certification. And this includes a number of the details that you need to know about that. Should that be interesting to folks you work with? <coughs> Pardon my coughing. With that, I am bringing this presentation to a close. And I thank you for your attention. So we'll give uh, Deborah a little bit of a break to, to catch her uh, or get back your voice. Um, so I'm Allison Hastings. I'm, I work at the Delaware Valley Regional Planning Commission in Philadelphia, um, which is Philadelphia's MPO. And I'm on the um, APA's Food Interest Group Steering Committee. So we're really happy that APA is using the month of November to highlight food system planning and specifically planners' roles in it and also um, the different types of what a food system planner looks like in, in the professional world. So um, check out our website, which is apafig.wordpress.com. <laughs> Um, so I'm going to moderate the question and, and answers for Deborah. Um, depending on how many questions there are, we may or may I may uh, because we're recording this just re uh, rephrase your question to save time so we don't have to go back and forth. Can I make one comment before we go to the Q, Q and A? So you just inspired me to mention that we are eagerly reading the results of our submission of a workshop proposal on the economic assessment toolkit for the National APA conference. So cross your fingers. Um, we'll be doing one. I guess we're supposed to hear next week. So looking forward to it. And I've also been working with uh, the research section of FIG and uh, hope to be, I probably will be doing a blog about some of our work for the FIG newsletter next month. Great, because we always want content on our website, so thank you. Um, <laughs> and uh, thanks for the plug, Deborah. There are different groups within APA FIG. If you want to join one, um, it's open to anybody. You don't have to be an APA member. So the research group is, is one of our large groups. So questions. Does anyone have a question for Deborah? So in the back, straight in the back, all the way in the back. You. Well, so can we? So sure. you want to first of all, can, sure, I can. I can repeat the question. Also, can we turn the lights on for this? Is that all right? It's just kind of hard for me to see faces and without it. Um, so I guess here would be my my answer to that. One, I don't know exactly where they drew. This was a consulting firm study and poll, so I don't know where they drew that from. I would say, however, let's look at the information related to SNAP redemptions and farmers markets, which you know many of which do are taking place in food deserts. Uh, I don't know some of the statistics off the top of my head, but I'd refer you to places like Fair Food Network and Ann Arbor and some of the studies they've done and certainly what Wholesome Wave has done, looking at how um, at least, you know, how vouchers and matching funds at, at markets coupled with uh, easier access to SNAP redemptions and in some cases actually having people help you know, with, uh, say, 
having bilingual people there if, uh, if people are not speaking the language of most of the merchants, okay? I know of some cases in California, say the International Rescue Committee was very successful in San Diego in making sure that at a market that was heavily populated by immigrant patrons that there were folks that were working in the market who could help navigate. Um, I'm sh- the research is not very deep, but I think it's starting to come in that we are seeing some sustained interest in patronage. Um, I think the other thing to keep in mind is there's often a myth that you know farmers' market prices are much too high. They're much higher than supermarkets. Actually, that research has not borne that out. Uh, I think it's true selectively. Um, yes, there are markets where you're going to have higher priced products and more gourmet products or more niche products. Overall, however, most of the studies I've seen have shown that at least in season, they're at least par um, with supermarket prices, and which is interesting, and uh, given the differences in scale. But uh, so, I don't know if there's that much literature yet on the lasting impact. Uh, there's some very good stuff in the food nutrition, but we can talk separately too. I say Eric Williams over at the. Uh, who does research for Food Nutrition Service, oversaw three national surveys on SNAP hostels and farmers' markets. And there's a lot of detail in terms of kind of attitudinal studies that we know about, uh, whether we've seen sustained changes in behavior. That I'm not sure we have yet in the research literature. It might be more in the public health literature. So next question on this side. Go ahead. Yep. So the question's about willingness versus ability to pay. Yes. <laughs> no, yes. And, and, and I think actually when I presented that, I said, you know, saying you're willing to pay is not the same as having an experiment where you actually do pay, you know. And, I mean, and there are ag economists out there who will set up those experiments and, like, have people select from, you know, different tables with products of different attributes. I don't know if they really would. I think it's still telling, however, if you have almost 60% of so-called low-income, and I don't know what definition they used, saying that they were willing to pay. To, I also know that there are some real successes, say Ward 3 and, and, and um, <clears throat> sorry, Ward 8 in D.C. has a pretty successful farmer's market, and a lot of it is good management knowing what people are willing to pay for. And if people feel that they're getting good value, you might have to change the way that you package the product. You might, you know, it may have to be different unit sizes. It may have, but, but, you know, I think it's also, it's understanding your customer just like any business. But I, I guess I don't see it as being um, as tough a sell as other people might make it out to be. And I think there's tremendous interest, again, getting back to why the Hispanics you know, segment within the poll thought it was so very important, you know, the highest level of interest. Well, I think much has to do with the way that they're looking at cooking and the way that they're used to evaluating food products and, and, and the way that they use fruits and vegetables in their diet and all kinds of things. And a lot of it's speculation on my part, but uh, it's educated speculation. Um, so that's the best answer I can give you. In the, right in the front.
Okay, so the question is, uh, how does food hubs physically fit into an urban space or economically or both? Okay, okay, okay. I can think of I can think of three good examples. <laughs> so one, the the urban center is going to be the market for for the for the local food. So so for example, we have a food hub in outside of Culpeper, um, as Blue Ridge Food Hub. And their primary markets, okay, are hospitals within, was Georgetown Hospitals one, you know, I mean, not all their hospitals, not all the hospitals in the city, but I mean, you know, it's like they're delivering to Arlington and and D.C. and large institutions. So one is it's a way of aggregating product from production areas that is going to come into an urban setting. Two other thoughts I have is, you can think of D.C. Central Kitchen as a food hub. It is a food hub, and we would list it as a food hub. Now, they're processing primarily, and for redistribution to the school systems, and you know, um, but it, it's not the same as sending it to wholesale clients. I mean, well, they sort of are, but it's a prepared food for the most part. So, well, they, what I know about it, which is, just this much, okay? They are they are uh, utilizing auction markets a great deal, okay? So obviously you know more than I do, so I have to talk to you. So, um, but to to me, it, you know, it's true the auction market, but they're doing the prep and they're doing the market preparation. So so with that so that yeah, then the other I was thinking of something like Union Kitchen, okay? Union Kitchen really is more of a business incubator. You call it a food hub, I don't know, but you know, you've got the commercial kitchen facility, you have some storage, you have some transportation. You know, it it's I guess that, you know, here it's like what kind of entities and I guess I wouldn't get too hung up on, you know, what's a food hub and what's an aggregator and what's a distributor. I mean, for me it's, you know, your question is, are we served by having a function, that last malfunction? Okay, getting food there, I would say yes, because it's very, very hard for people to take care of everything on their own, okay, and figure out all the paperwork and figure out all the requirements and have to lease all the equipment and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So that um, not every example has been successful. I mean, Good Eggs had to close its operations in three cities and they were pretty successful on the West Coast. But you know, I do think there are many examples out there where, yes, urban uh, urban planners and urban residents should be very interested in what food hubs do. It's basically just about distribution in metropolitan areas. Uh, so in the back, and then we'll come to the front. In the back. Okay, urban ag and food hubs. <laughs> Are you a plant? Did my did my boss set you up? It's a hard question, but it but I have some answers. It's just that um, in reality, we don't know a whole lot about the size of urban ag. We have a new um, 
Oh, okay. <laughs> Sorry. We have a new project going on with Cornell. Actually, we just signed off on it to look at 20 what we consider commercial-sized urban ag case studies. Um, the department's getting very interested in it, but I would say partly because of the way we do data collection and the way that we measure commercial farm operations and, and collect census data anyhow and the timing of that census data, we really are very behind in really understanding it. Now, I'd say that our folks that are working more on systems, you know, UDC just had an urban ag symposium, and we had a lot of presence there, and people were working on, you know, you know, hydroponics and aquaponics, and so with the science and the engineering part, I think we understand how to market it, not so much. We're really interested, though. I can tell you one example that I know of that I think gives a hint of how these things can work. So in Richmond... Um, Tricycle Gardens has been working with Relay Foods, which is a food hub, to get urban farm-grown food into Bon Secours Hospital, and they're doing it successfully. Um, we certainly know a lot of examples of urban farms that are have led to the development of uh, related or affiliated farmers markets and non-farm markets. So, you know, there are linkages. I do not think they're well studied right now. I think we know very little, but I think that there's everything to indicate that it continues to be on the upswing. Um, my question is, how much of urban ag ever is going to be really commercially oriented versus being a self-sufficiency model? which was really the initial impetus for a lot of it anyhow, about self-empowerment, about lowering your own family's food costs, and about you know green space too, and other wonderful amenities and training. So to me, the economic potential of urban ag, I believe there is some, but I believe it's a question mark, and I believe it's contextual. And I don't think it's the salvation for everything. I mean, at least not yet. It's just because it hasn't been the driver. Now, I know you, we were talking about green scroll in Philly, and I don't know if you had anything to add about that, actually. So, um, so I can I can add something about Greens Grow in Philadelphia, which is an urban farm that um, grosses over a million dollars a year. That sounds amazing, right? But they're they're actually a food hub. So how they they're really the marketing arm, um, marketing CSAs to um, to young folks who are living in a, in a transitional neighborhood. But they're bringing local food from the regional farmers into that urban space. Um, and what they grow on site is actually high-value uh, greenhouse crops because it's a really good use of their space, and they can grow year-round, and it's high-value. Nursery crops are extremely high-value, which you see a lot of farmers in Long Island and South Jersey who, who also transitioned from potato farming, from corn far uh, growing corn to uh greenhouse or, or nursery crops as areas suburbanized. So it's a, it's a really interesting idea of, um, you know, they're really maximizing their urban footprint and using their brand to get the to get food to, into the neighborhood. So, okay, we have, I think we have time for one more question, and that's going to be you. Yeah, okay. <laughs> you mentioned that you have a study coming out. Yeah, I think you said today, the joint study with the DMV. Yeah. All right, farmers markets on DOD land. Yes. Okay. So, the impetus behind doing it was um, DOD has really been trying to push uh, health and wellness 
uh, through increasing and improving the quality of food that is available on base. And one of the major ways they decided to do it is they, uh, I don't know if it was like initially maybe half a dozen, probably someone in the room knows better than I do, but starting farmer's markets, and they have been increasing the number. Now, I should mention that, you know, VA hospitals, a number of them have had farmer's markets for quite some time, and they've kind of been in the forefront. But uh, we're just starting to see uh, a much greater embrace of this as part of overall how are we going to improve the health of our military personnel and our military families. Um, and of course, because it's a base and because of security considerations and because of procurement and because of rules and, and you think USDA is a bureaucracy, well, okay, so you know, DOD I think is a whole other kettle of fish. And, um, so really what the manual does is talk about who do you talk to in the organization to get things done more than anything else. It isn't so much outlining policy as it is kind of a guideline to, here's how we made it work. And here's what you need to think about. So there's a lot, but actually I think for this audience there's a lot there. There's a lot about property management. Um, there's just like a lot about organizational knowledge. Um, who's responsible for what? Um, and how does it sync up with new policies around health and wellness? So I think it's good stuff. It is available on our website. Is it actually, I'm going to ask my boss, is it available in our division website or is it on the AMS website? I think it's AMS. It just came out today, so that's how come we don't know. <laughs> if you put like AMS, military bases, farmers markets, you'll find it. <laughs> Yeah, thank you. Okay. Well, let's give Deborah a round of applause. Thank you. And we'll close it. So, thank you so much.